0: Coming up next, it's coverage of today's Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the nomination of William Barr, President Bush's choice to be the nation's new attorney general.
1: Maybe the weirdest thing about today's Senate hearing for Attorney General nominee William Barr is that we've been here before.
0: William Barr is 41 years of age. He worked for the Central Intelligence Agency and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals before joining with President Reagan's transition team.
1: More than 25 years ago. It was President George H.W. Bush who'd nominated Barr to be attorney general. That's the head of the Department of Justice. And it was Senators Ted Kennedy, Strom Thurmond, and Joe Biden who were questioning him.
0: Executive privilege. Uh, in your capacity uh, at the Justice Department, have you ever refused access to information um, sought by a congressional committee on the grounds of executive privilege? Or uh, recommended that? Well, I, I was at OL. While I I was at OLC, I uh, did... Behind
1: bar while he testified, his uh, wife and three daughters. uh, Side note here, one of those daughters is now a lawyer herself. She's actually in charge of the DOJ's response to the opioid crisis. So if this latest round of hearings goes well, her father may be about to become her boss.
0: I think there's been a little bit of hype about my position on executive privilege.
1: Uh, privilege. Are you going to be watching the hearings? Um, I will certainly watch some of them. Noah Feldman studies constitutional law, teaches at Harvard. Feldman's been thinking about what we can learn from William Barr's first stint at the DOJ.
0: Well, first of all, I'm just inherently fascinated when someone appears from history and suddenly is going to have a new historical role. You know, if Barr is confirmed, which seems likely, he'll be the only person, as far as I'm able to determine, who's ever served as attorney general two different times. And he will have done it more than 25 years apart from each other. The only other person in the modern era who's had a cabinet position in that kind of long period of time apart is, can you guess? (laughs) Rumsfeld. It's Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld was uh, Secretary of Defense uh, briefly under Gerald Ford, and then he came back again and got to be Secretary of Defense under George W. Bush. So that immediately sets off, to be honest, some alarm bells for me.
1: Going into these hearings, William Barr is saying all the right things. He's on a first-name basis with Robert Mueller, who he oversaw back in the first Bush administration. And Barr plans to tell Congress, on my watch, Bob will be allowed to complete his work. He even suggests Mueller's findings could be made public. But Noah Feldman still has a few questions.
0: A key point to make is just how consequential this attorney general is going to be. He could be one of the most important attorney generals we've had in a long time. We've just forgotten that because We had sessions and he was recused. So we've been sort of acting like it doesn't matter who's attorney general during, you know, a a part of justice investigation of the president of the United States.
1: You sound pretty grim, actually.
0: (laughs) I I think it is somewhat grim.
1: On today's show, we're going to try to figure out what might come next at the DOJ by looking backwards. Noah Feldman's going to help me out. Stay with us. It doesn't seem like William Barr thought he'd be returning to the Department of Justice after he left in 1993. In his testimony in front of Congress today, he'll say he's partially retired and that he was reluctant to be considered for the job of AG. When he's talked about his work in the past, he's been pretty candid. In 2001, he did a lengthy interview about his years inside the Bush administration. It's now archived at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. And what comes through in more than 100 pages of conversation is that Barr thought he did a great job and that he also has a clear idea of executive power. That is, the president has plenty of authority to do what he wants.
0: That's clearly correct. And I think what's important to, to think about this is to keep in mind two different thoughts that are a little bit in tension with each other, but in my view, at least they're both true. The first is that Barr's view of executive power and executive privilege is too strong. It is stronger than it should be, and it's worrisome, and there's good reason for senators to push him on it and for the public to keep an eye on it. The second thing, which is a little bit in tension with the first one, is Barr's views on executive power are not outside the mainstream. And they're definitely not outside the mainstream for someone who's worked for the president, uh, as he did when he was the assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the job where you essentially advise the president on the legality and constitutionality of his actions. People in that job tend to have a very strong view of executive power and the opinions of that office are always the most pro-executive positions they can possibly be because they work for the president. And Barr's views are within the mainstream of that, of that office. And I think that's something that's also important to keep in mind.
1: Well, if it's not outside the mainstream, how can you say it's definitely too strong?
0: Well, I think what I'm saying is that it's wrong, but not that it's outside the mainstream. You know, I think those are, those are two different things in law as in life. I mean, we've sort of forgotten to say this in the current political climate where we think that everybody on the other side is not just wrong, but crazy. But it is possible to say in life and in law, your views are wrong, but they're not crazy. <laughs> they're they're reasoned and they have logic behind them, but that logic is wrong. And that's exactly what I think about Barr's view on executive power.
1: So Noah Feldman has a pretty clear opinion on this idea. And it's pretty much the opposite of William Barr's opinion. And given what we know about what happened last time William Barr led the DOJ, Feldman thinks senators need to ask about how Barr sees one particular form of power, presidential pardons. You say the most important thing to look back on from his time as attorney general is how he handled the Iran-Contra affair in 1992. Why? Well, the thing
0: that the history of Brooks remember about Bill Barr, or would have remembered if he didn't pop up again now, is this recommendation of pardons for six people who had been convicted of or were about to be convicted of felonies in the Iran-Contra scandal. And the reason that matters is that that investigation was actually gradually making its way towards then-President George H.W. Bush, who had been vice president when Iran-Contra was going on.
1: Quick refresher here. Iran-Contra was a scandal from the Reagan years. Administration officials approved arms sales to Iran and used that money to fund guerrilla warfare in Nicaragua. All of this against Congress's explicit instructions. A lawyer named Lawrence Walsh was put in charge of investigating what happened. He investigated for six years. So how did William Barr get involved with all this?
0: Well, the way Barr got involved is that the investigation was going on during George H.W. Bush's presidency, uh, which immediately followed Reagan's presidency. And matters came to a head towards the end of George H.W. Bush's term, by which time Barr was actually attorney general. And what happened then was that Walsh actually indicted Casper Weinberger, the former secretary of defense of the Reagan administration, four days before the 1992 presidential election, when George H.W. Bush was running against Bill Clinton. Something new popped up in Washington as well that President Bush could do without late in the campaign. And, you know, that's a pretty far cry from Bob Mueller, who's been extremely respectful of not taking any action, really, in close connection to, you know, close juxtaposition to an election. Walsh just went for it. President Reagan decided to offer 4,000 tow missiles to Iran in exchange for five American hostages. Weinberger's note says Vice President Bush was in favor of the deal. Bush believed that that cost him the election. Hmm. True or false, Bush believed that. And we know that because... Bush told Barr that he believed that, and Barr told uh, this oral history project. So we know, we know that that was Bush's view. So the big problem was that Walsh was pressing Bush himself to hand over a diary that he had kept during the Iran-Contra period, and Bush refused to hand it over. And Walsh called this official misconduct by the President of the United States. And just at this moment, Barr appeared as the hero of the story. He went to George H.W. Bush— Having first ignored his own pardon office in the Department of Justice, which was recommending against pardons, and he told Bush, "I think you should pardon Weinberger and then five other uh, people who were also implicated in, in iran contra and that gave Bush the cover to do so, and Bush pardoned them all, telling the world that it was the attorney general 's recommendation and that essentially left Walsh finished. It blew out his investigation president bush 's pardon of casper Weinberger and other Iran contra-defendants undermines the principle that no man is above the law. It demonstrates that powerful people
1: with powerful allies can commit serious crimes in high office. I mean, it sounds so familiar, right? Like you have a president who's being investigated by a special prosecutor. You see this vise tightening, and then you see... William Barr sort of sweep in, and he takes credit for it, really, in that interview you mentioned with the Miller Center.
0: Absolutely. He says it was all his idea. He says that he ignored his own pardon office. He says he went over to Bush. He says that he developed his own private theory of when pardons were appropriate and then wrote it down in a note. As far as I know, that note isn't public, although I'm really hoping the senators will try to dig it out if there even is such a note. So yeah, Barr was, by his own account, the hero from Bush's perspective. And he got the present out of it. And to me, the, the parallels are very, very, they're very striking and they're very worrisome because they suggest that Barr learned the lesson that you don't fire the special prosecutor. What you do is you render his investigation irrelevant by pardoning the people he's investigating.
1: I wonder if the sort of web-like way that Mueller has worked this investigation where you see it not just happening in Washington, D.C. and Virginia, but you see investigations in New York, whether even if your worst case scenario happens and people get pardoned before we can really know the true extent of what's been found, I wonder if that in some way protects this investigation from this kind of meddling.
0: Unfortunately, I think it doesn't, and that's the beauty of a pardon. The great thing about Mueller's strategy of spreading the wealth is that if you fire Mueller, the Southern District of New York would still be working on Cohen, and the Eastern District would still be working on Manafort. So that was a good insulation by Mueller against the possibility of his being fired. But if you pardon Manafort and Gates, and if you pardon Cohen, then it's a lot harder for those offices to continue to investigate because the offices are going to be stuck with the fact that their targets are now outside of the bounds of their prosecutorial jurisdiction. I mean, that's the, the nature of a pardon. So actually, you know, if you wanted to kill the Mueller investigation even beyond Mueller, pardons are a much more effective tool for doing that than firing Mueller would be.
1: I mean, what do we know about what William Barr thinks about Mueller's investigation?
0: Well, all we really know is what he's said, you know, publicly or quasi-publicly, which is that he's skeptical of it, that he thinks there might be overreach. And that he has a legal theory about how at least some of the president's actions shouldn't be considered to be relevant to a criminal charge of obstruction of justice. And he said that much. Um, He's also, however, said, to be fair to Barr, that he doesn't know the facts. He said he was in the dark about the facts. And, you know, once he gets access to the facts, potentially his view could alter a little bit.
1: What really struck me about William Barr is he sent an unsolicited memo to Rod Rosenstein, like, here are my criticisms of what's going on, which just struck me as like, I just don't even know how common that is for a former attorney general to just sort of weigh in unsolicited on an active investigation that the DOJ is doing.
0: I think it's extremely rare to the point of being weird You know, I think there are sort of two possible explanations for it, one a little bit more innocent than the other. The more innocent explanation is he had a legal theory about why the president couldn't be charged with obstruction of justice for firing Comey. And that particular legal theory, which is actually pretty sophisticated, unlike a lot of the crude legal theories that have been thrown about, about why the president couldn't be prosecuted, had not really been aired. It had not really been broadly discussed. And maybe this is the sympathetic view. He just really thought, you know, he just he really wanted the Department of Justice to have heard that theory. The less sympathetic view is he had a sense that there was a job available out there and this was his, you know, please hire me memo. And if so, it seems to have worked pretty well for him.
1: You know, you said this memo was weird, but does that mean he should recuse himself?
0: That's a judgment call. And my instinct is actually to say no. If he had said, I know the facts, and here they are, and I've reached judgment on them, that would be maybe a reason to recuse himself. But he didn't, he, and he bent over backwards to say, I don't know what the facts are. This is just my theory about what the law is. And unless you're a Supreme Court justice who hasn't yet decided an open constitutional question and you give your opinion about it, in which case maybe you should be, maybe you should be recused, if you're the Attorney General, you have views about a lot of legal matters. You're allowed to have legal views, and the fact that you have those legal views isn't grounds to recuse you. The, the recusal would only be if you have a view about exactly how those legal views apply to the facts. And he he's a smart guy. And he knew that if he ever became a nominee for a Attorney General, people would say this. And so he wrote the memo in such a way that he probably shouldn't have to recuse himself.
1: But in the last week, Rod Rosenstein, who's been overseeing the Mueller investigation, announced he'd be leaving the DOJ. That means if he's confirmed, William Barr will be in charge of an investigation he has been openly questioning. So I asked Noah... If Barr gets confirmed, what happens then? Well, so if Rod Rosenstein is gone and William Barr has this very strong idea of the president's power and how protected the president is, assuming Barr is confirmed, which I know is an if, what do we think happens next?
0: So the first really interesting question is, could Mueller submit his report before Barr comes in and have that report be made public before Barr is sworn in. If that happens, then we would still have to be, you know, focused and concerned on potential pardons, but we wouldn't have to be as worried about Mueller. The timing, to me, makes that seem unlikely. I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's relatively unlikely. I think, especially because there's some legal uncertainty right now about who's really in charge of the Mueller investigation. You know, the president wants it to be Matthew Whitaker who's the, the acting, acting attorney general. general. But there's a legal case at court arguing that Whitaker was not lawfully appointed. So there's actually some uncertainty about whether Rosenstein is still in charge of that or whether Whitaker's in charge of it. So given that, it's more probable that the report is going to be submitted to Barr. So then what happens? Well what happens then is that Barr has to read the report and Barr has to decide whether it's going to be made public. And here's where the next really big Conflict could arise because it may be that there are portions of the report that President Trump doesn't want made public, and it will then be up to Barr in the first instance to decide who's right. Should the president be able to block certain elements of the report from being made public or not? So that would be Barr's talk about a trial by fire. That might be his first major thing that he has to do when he's Attorney General is negotiate in a fight between Mueller and and the president. And that could be a major deal. And that, interestingly, will be about probably executive privilege.
1: I mean, it strikes me as we're having this, like, very big debate about, like, what the DOJ is for. Like, Barr's been on the record talking about how people the DOJ are usually naysayers. It was really interesting. There was this Washington Post op-ed by a former DOJ lawyer last week. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. But she talked about how she felt empathetic with the reality show producers from, <laughs> from Trump's time on reality TV, where she felt like she would get things that she had to sort of like reverse engineer to make legal sense. But it struck me like she's left the DOJ.
0: Like, yeah, That's really interesting. Otherwise, she couldn't have written the op-ed unless she, she did it anonymously. Yeah. here, I think Barr's oral history also has some interesting lessons to offer, because he actually expresses in there a kind of philosophy of the DOJ and its relationship to the president. And it's a really it's not an obvious philosophy. So let me let me do my best to try to describe what it is. It's got two parts. And the first part sounds really good. And the second part sounds really bad. So the part that sounds really good is he talks a lot about the independence of the Department of Justice from the president with respect to criminal prosecutions. Now, he even has a, you know, a great example of getting a request as attorney general from the president about, you know, whether the president could make a statement about a particular criminal proceeding that he was engaged in. He says, look, look how amazing that is. The president of the United States was asking me for permission, I was the attorney general. <laughs> and he also says a few times that in the Reagan and Bush administrations, they left the DOJ alone. They gave the DOJ a great deal of independence. So that all sounds good, because one of the things that Donald Trump has tried to do systematically is weaken the idea that the DOJ and the FBI have independence when it comes to criminal prosecution. And there is reason to believe that once in office, Barr might actually push back on that, that Barr might actually say, look, this Department of Justice needs to be independent when it comes to making criminal justice determinations. And I think it's very important for us to maintain that independence. And he might actually be able to to stand up to to Trump on that, which would be impressive if he were. So that's my my one bit of optimism. (laughs) The pessimism comes in because even as he's telling you in this oral history how much he believes in the independence of DOJ on criminal prosecution, Barr is also saying on almost every page of this document, of this interview, that he was in nearly daily contact with the White House for the entire time he worked in the Department of Justice, whether he was at OLC or whether he was the Deputy Attorney General, whether he was the Attorney General of the United States. You know, some of that is normal. The White House Counsel does often talk to OLC because the White House Counsel is asking OLC for opinions about things, about whether things are legal that the government wants to do. But he was profoundly in touch with the White House. So in that sense, he wasn't independent at all and doesn't believe in independence and believes in close coordination. So that, that's the that's the downside.
1: You know, I'm struck by it. We spoke to Mary McCord, who used to work at the DOJ. Now she, mm-hmm. I think she's at Georgetown, back when Sessions was fired. And she said, you know, the one thing you have to keep in mind is that you never know how this person is going to feel until they've gotten that briefing as attorney general. And it, it changes everything. And mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder if... I mean, history is so useful to guide us here. But I don't know. Do you think that there's going to be something surprising about how he feels about things going in?
0: You know, I think that is possible. You know, now I'm going to say another optimistic thing. One of the weird things about this administration has been that they don't have people in important positions for the most part who have senior experience in previous uh, Republican White Houses. And the reason for that is of course, that the last two Republican presidents both had the name Bush, and the Bush circle and the Trump circle detest each other. So until Bolton as national security advisor and now Barr, basically nobody who had a senior position in either Bush administration, which takes you back to 1988, has had a senior position in the Trump administration. So that's part of the incompetence and rule-breaking and weirdness that we've seen in this presidency. And the one thing you can say about Barr is he actually has served in this job before in, for lack of a better word, a real presidency. You know, I mean, there's plenty of things to say critically about George H.W. Bush, about George W. Bush, but they were presidents within the norm of what it means to be presidents. And this president in many ways is not. And so in that sense, Barr belongs to a world of the establishment. And it may be, That, you know, if there's a genuine factual question and something is put to him and Mueller has evidence that genuinely shows criminality, that Barr will be shocked and will, you know, stand with Mueller. I believe that is within the bounds of possibility for sure.
1: Noah Feldman, thanks for talking.
0: Great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: This episode is brought to you by Discover. Before I let you go, one last rabbit hole I jumped down today. Michael Bolton. Yeah, the Grammy award-winning pop singer. Yesterday, Slate's Fred Kaplan joined the show to talk about the two men guiding Trump's Middle East policy, including National Security Advisor John Bolton. Only the president, he doesn't call him that. You know, there's been stories that Trump barely, you know, Trump... Keeps referring to him as Mike. You know, he he barely knows who he is. Yeah, okay, a listener actually flagged this for me on Twitter. And I got to say, given that President Trump says he's fallen in love with Kim Jong un, maybe Michael Bolton would make a pretty good foreign policy advisor. We were going to war
0: with North Korea. That was what was going to happen. And then we fell in love. Okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. We fell in love. But you know what? Now they'll make they'll say Donald Trump said they fell in love. How horrible! How horrible is that?
1: You can tweet me your jokes by tagging me at Mary's desk. Make sure to CC Slate Podcasts. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and it's produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon with help from Daniel Hewitt. Want to spread some What Next love? Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or you can just run into the middle of the street and scream, I love What Next, and send us a video. We would appreciate it. Totally. But maybe be careful with that last one. Talk to you tomorrow.